The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Paul writes these words. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, your word is before us, and the time that we have together, we pray that you would cause it to come alive in our midst. You would challenge us by it, that you would encourage us by it, you would draw us in close to yourself and make yourself known to us. Help us this morning as we teach and read and study your word. For the glory and honor of Christ Jesus alone we pray. Amen. As we pause this weekend to honor those who have given their lives for our nation, uh, we are vividly reminded that War brings with it a, a terrible cost. And that terrible cost is paid in many ways, but most egregiously it's paid in the blood of human lives. In our nation's history, over 1.1 million men and women have been killed in relationship to war of some sort. Let that number sink in. That's an awful lot of folks who have let and died somewhere in the cause of, of our nation. And we remember them this weekend. That is what Memorial Day is about. We, we pause and we give thanks for those who have paid that ultimate sacrifice. We understand that the freedoms we enjoy and the lives that we live in many ways have been secured at the cost of those lives. And yet that price is high. So we give thanks for them. We give thanks for their sacrifice. We uh, remember their families, particularly those who are living, who are living with a significant gap in their, in their homes because someone that they love is now gone. And we do this because we know that, uh, we realize that now, just as always, evil exists in the world. Evil people are in fact evil nations, evil rulers. And since the birth of this nation, there have been those who have sought to destroy it. There have been those who have sought to come against it. And this very day around the world, there are some very, very bad players who would desire to destroy this nation were they given the chance to take away the freedoms that you enjoy, like the one that we enjoy this very moment to gather and worship the Lord Jesus without fear. And standing between them and us are the brave men and women of our armed forces who every single day get up and go to work. And every single day they make sacrifices. They move their families around from every couple of years and reestablish in a new place in order to do their work well. And they serve with courage and they serve with commitment and they stand between us and them and they say, essentially by their very presence, that's not going to happen on my watch. 
And I think because in our lifetime, many, maybe even, well, definitely most, if not, well, not all, but most, the vast majority of those who have died due to war have died on foreign soil. And because it happens on foreign soil and it's not in front of us all the time, it's very easy for that to be out of sight and out of mind. It's very easy for us to sort of go on with life as usual, enjoy our freedom, and forget that that freedom comes at a high price. But the cost of war is tremendous. It's tremendous. Today, less than 1% of the U.S. population serves in the United States military of some sort, active and reserve. Somewhere around 2.5 million people who put their lives at risk right now. War comes at a, at a high price. But as we turn our attention to the Word of God this morning, we're reminded that war does have a high price, and war comes in many different forms. What we think about on Memorial Day is human war. It's earthly war. It's war between nations. It's war between people. But there's another war that rages just the same all the time, all around the world. It's a spiritual war. It's a war that isn't easily perceived by the untrained eye. It is a war that is real nonetheless. And it's equally devastating, perhaps more. A human war, at worst, can take a human life, cost a human life. A spiritual war, eternal souls hang in the balance. And the consequences are not just earthly, they're eternal. The Bible makes clear, really from start to finish, that even though human beings rage in war on a human sort of horizontal level on the earth, there's a spiritual war that rages behind the scenes. It's a war that takes place, the Scriptures tell us, in the heavenlies. A war between the God of the universe and those who serve Him and the enemy of our souls, Satan, the devil, and those who serve him. Paul captures this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and following, when he says to the Ephesian church, the same church to whom Timothy is speaking, or to whom Timothy is ministering, he says this, put on the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. tells the Ephesian church there's a war that's going on, and you're smack dab in the middle of it. It's raging all around you, although you may not perceive it. But it is real nonetheless. And you'd be a fool to walk out into life every day and walk out into that battle unarmed and unprepared for the fight. Because to do so is spiritual suicide. And if we had time this morning, we could sort of track all the way through Scripture where we see evidence of the battle that's taking place. You could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and we begin to see Adam and Eve and a tempter who comes breathing lies and twisting truth. 
in drawing the man and the woman away from the Lord. You flip over in your Bible a few pages and you see Moses going up uh, to the mountain to receive the law of the Lord. And immediately upon his return, what does he find going on with the people that he left behind? They're already making a golden calf and worshiping a false god. And the battle is raging and Moses steps into spiritual warfare. It's not very long after that, if you flip your Bible a few more pages, and you find Joshua standing before the people of God saying, you have to choose today, who are you going to serve? The Lord or the false gods, the demons? It's a spiritual war that Joshua was in the middle of, and the people were in the middle of. If you turn over to the book of Job, you see uh, a a conversation between Job and the Lord in, in which... We find actually a conversation previous to that between the enemy, Satan, and the Lord, in which the enemy is requesting access to the life of Job, which is granted in that instance. And the battle begins to rage in Job's life, even though he doesn't fully understand it from the start. It was a spiritual war that he was caught up in. If you go to the New Testament and you follow the life of Jesus, you don't follow him very long before you see the battle sort of come to the surface. Jesus encounters people who are demonized, who are literally consumed and controlled by demons, by demonic spirits, powers. And when Jesus comes into their presence, they almost always immediately recognize him and will on occasion speak to him. And Jesus on on multiple occasions test them out. You see, it's a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. When Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders who were corrupt of his day, the Pharisees, he, he contends with them over truth, and they contend for lies. And he says to them, at least on one occasion, you cannot believe what I'm telling you is the truth because you don't know me. You serve your father, the devil. You see, there was a war that was going on, and they had chosen sides. And it was the wrong side. Peter, the great apostle, is told by Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, and following these words, Jesus says to Peter, also called Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter was walking into warfare, spiritual warfare, that had real life on the ground consequences in his life. Jesus had warned him, and he later found it to be true. We don't have more time than that, really, than to, to, to give a little quick survey, but I hope I've given you enough to understand that there's a real battle that rages behind the scenes, largely unperceived, unless you're looking for it and you know the signs of it. And it rages all around us. There are two really common errors that I see regularly. And C.S. Lewis identified these things really carefully years ago in his book, The Screwtape Letters. And so I'll just quote him. And he says this, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist, that's somebody who ignores them, pretends they don't exist, or a magician, somebody who's obsessed with them, with 
the same kind of delight. The Bible continuously calls us to be aware that there's a war going on around us, a spiritual war. And yet it warns us of the dangers of having an unhealthy interest in these things and becoming obsessed with them or with the other error that, that, that Lewis points out of, of ignoring and pretending like these things aren't real and like they don't matter. And you know, it's interesting that I was getting a haircut just a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to the young lady who was cutting my hair who is someone who does clearly does not know the Lord and we've, I've been building some relationship with her over time I mean, what else do you do when you're sitting in the chair and somebody's clipping your hair they have a weapon and it's near your head so you want to be careful but um, we've had some very interesting conversation this, this young lady and I and uh, she said to me just uh, at, at, in, during this conversation because she recently found out I was a pastor I don't always advertise that on the surface because just so you'll know people tend to act differently around you when you divulge that information um, and so I, I prefer to get people's real self rather than the oh I know you're a pastor let me behave a certain way self um, but she had found out through someone else that I was a pastor and um, so she asked me just randomly while, while she was cutting my hair, Hey, do you believe in angels, like guardian angels and stuff? That was the quote. I said, well, yes, I believe in angels for sure. And uh, she says uh, on the heels of that, Do you believe in fortune tellers, people who can tell the future? So we went from, you know, haircut to something pretty serious pretty quick. And in the subsequent conversation, she explained to me that she, was, she had an appointment that week to go see a medium to... Uh, to um, get some help that she was looking for. It was interesting. I asked her, why, why, incidentally, why would, you, why would you make an appointment to go see a medium? Because in my mind, everybody knows that those people are phonies in general. That anything positive they have to offer is not positive. At best, they're just phonies. At worst, they're sort of a channel through which demons have access to you. It was interesting. She said, you know, I just kind of feel like you know, we're all here for some reason and some purpose. And I'm just trying to figure out what mine is. It's a very raw and a very transparent answer. But what she was totally ignorant of was that she was walking into an environment, potentially, where great damage could be done to her soul. She was walking into a battle that she was unfamiliar with and ignorant of. And she was in grave danger. This battle rages all around us. And Michael Scanlon writes this, speaking of the fact that skepticism and ignorance of it isn't, isn't a, uh, doesn't change anything. He says this, we can't be indifferent to the fact that there's a war going on. The war doesn't stop because you don't believe it. You can't opt out of the battle because war doesn't appeal to you. The war is a fact, a dangerous fact, that you ignore to your own peril. John Piper writes this, We've stopped believing that we're in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. And what have we done with prayer? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call down firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. He uses very vivid language sort of accuse us of things that I think are quite true quite often. The reality is we're just ignorant of the war that goes on around us, but it rages nonetheless. And we walk through the battlefield all day, every day. 
And when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 1, we enter into the life of this young man, Timothy, who is right in the middle of the battlefield as this letter is written and as it arrives. The spiritual battle is raging around him. The particular manifestation of the battle in his life on the ground, if you will, is through false teachers who have infiltrated the church and are creating havoc and chaos within the local body of the church that he's called to shepherd and to pastor there in Ephesus. And he's right in the middle of the war. And Paul writes this little letter in order to encourage him to to, to stand fast, to hold his post and not to give up. He writes it because Timothy apparently is becoming discouraged and potentially considering walking off the battlefield. And so Paul needs to encourage him and strengthen him and build him up for the fight. And when we come into verse 18, we really pick back up with this same theme that he started back at the beginning of chapter 1 and verses 3 through 7. In fact, if you were to read chapter 1 and verses 3 through 7, and you were to then just read, skip down to verse 18 and pick up, it would seem like a seamless conversation and argument. What's in between are sort of asides that Paul speaks to that we've dealt with the last couple weeks. But he begins his letter in the first three, in the first few verses there, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, by telling Timothy, here's what you need to do. You need to charge, I'm charging you, to, to, to tell these men who are teaching false doctrine to stop it, to deal with this false teaching that's going on in the church, this heresy that's running wild. You have to shut it down. <clears throat> and he comes back to this theme in verse 18, when he says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with all the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you might, or you may, wage the good warfare. That's how the ESV translates. Some others translate, you might fight the good fight. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, you're in a war. You're in a war. You're in the middle of a battle that's going on. And Timothy, we're going to see, needs some context. Because, you know, that's what happens when you're on the ground at battle level on planet Earth here. And and the enemy is coming at you through other people, which is the case in Timothy's life, that sometimes we need to zoom out a little bit and grab a broader perspective of what's going on. And so that's what Paul intends to do here by using a military metaphor, is to help Timothy see, Timothy, you're doing battle against people. He's going to name a couple of them in this text. But at the end of the day, Timothy, this is a a skirmish in a much bigger war. This is a spiritual war that's going on that you're in the middle of. And you're not alone. And you need to know how to fight a good fight, how to wage a good war. How to wage a good war. Timothy, this charge I entrust with you. I entrust to you. What is this charge he's talking about? Well, it's the charge back in verse 3. Where he says that I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's the charge that Timothy has been entrusted with, that Paul has entrusted to him, is to Paul is saying, Timothy, I've charged you to go charge them to stop it, to cut out the false teaching. Stop teaching heresy. This is military terminology. This is marching orders from Paul to Timothy. It's not a suggestion. It's not up for discussion. It's a, it's a mandate to be carried out. That's how it works in the military. You know, you get orders and you fulfill your orders. It's funny when I was talking to somebody about uh, the orders that I have coming up in October to go to Bahrain for nine months. And they said, well, do you have to go? I said, what do you mean do I have to go? They call them orders for a reason. They don't call them suggestions or recommendations. 
They call them orders. And it says very clearly in them, you will fulfill these or else bad things will happen to you. That's what orders are. And it's in that same sort of a context that Paul is speaking to Timothy. Timothy, you have orders. This is not a discussion. This isn't a suggestion for you to consider. I'm charging you with this. You get into the church and you tell these people to shut down. And you do what it takes to shut it down. Because the battle is real and people are being wounded and damage is being done to the body. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Paul writes to the same young man and he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Right before that, he said, I solemnly charge you, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Timothy had a duty to fulfill. He had orders to carry out. And it was, it was to be done regardless of how the people on the ground responded to it. And Paul says, I'm charging you with this. Here are your orders and I'm entrusting these things to you. Entrusting these things to you. Paul, Paul uses the word entrust. It's a word for committing something of value to somebody else. It's the word used of putting a deposit in the bank. And Paul is saying, look, Paul, Timothy, I've made, a, I've made a deposit in your life. I've made a deposit of truth in your life. And I've entrusted that to you. And I'm entrusting that to your care that you might go and put it to work in the life of the body. Over in chapter 6, verse 20. Paul says to, to Timothy this, So Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. That deposit is truth, the truth of the gospel. It's been entrusted to Timothy, and Timothy's to guard that, and he is to entrust it to other people. And that's how the church of Jesus has historically advanced over the years, is that the, the somebody, entr- some person entrusts the gospel into another person, and that person then finds someone else in whom they can entrust the gospel and the gospel transforms and it spreads. That's what discipleship is all about. And there is the expectation when, when a deposit is made and entrusted to us that we will both guard that and then entrust it to other people. And that's the expectation that Paul has on Timothy and that he's calling him to fulfill. But he's, as he does this, he says something interesting that doesn't uh, seem obvious on the surface. He says, Timothy, I charge you this and trust this to you, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. What in the world is he talking about? What are these prophecies previously made about you that Paul's referencing here? Well, to be honest with you, we're not fully sure exactly what he's referring to here, but he's referring to something that happened at an event, and he mentions it a couple of times in, in sort of different ways. Um, it, it's likely something that took place in conjunction with Timothy's ordination that had taken place previously. Paul refers to this over in chapter 4, uh, verse 14, when he tells us this. He says to Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. He's referring back to Timothy's commissioning to his ordination. And he says, at least in that short verse, that at least three things happened when Timothy was ordained. One, he was given some sort of a spiritual gift, perhaps the gift of preaching. We can speculate, but we don't know for sure. But he was given some sort of a spiritual gift. Some sort of a prophecy was made concerning him and the future ministry that he might have. And the elders laid hands on him and prayed for him. Whatever the details are that surround sort of that event, that was a moment in Timothy's life that was a spiritual high point for him. 
It was a moment that he looked back on and had, had never forgot. It was so significant in his life, that moment where he was set apart for the work of the Lord, where the elders laid hands on him and prophecy was made concerning him and a particular spiritual gift was granted to him to be able to execute the work of the ministry. It was so impactful to him that he made some sort of a what Paul calls a strong confession publicly in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Paul says to him, Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Whatever happened in the mix of that ordination was so significant that Timothy stood and said something publicly as a response to that. And the reason Paul brings this up is because Timothy is discouraged. And he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, I understand that you're in the middle of the battle. And I understand that it's hard right now. And I understand that there are moments when you're discouraged and when you want to give up. And when the battle is hard and when it's exhausting and when you don't want to keep going. And when maybe even it seems like it's not going to be a battle that you can win. But he says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm entrusting this charge to you in accordance with prophecies made about you. Timothy, remember remember back when you were commissioned. Timothy needs motivation. And Paul is reminding him to look back at that moment when God set him apart from everyone else to go do this particular ministry. He reminds him of that spiritual high place in his life. And Timothy needed to be reminded that the reason he's in the fight is because God has called him for such a time as this. That God has commissioned him for this very thing. He needed to remember that God had called him. He needed to remember that. Listen, the spiritual battle, whether you're a pastor or a servant in some other kind of ministry, can be so intense and it can take such a toll that leaders sometimes stop and look in the mirror and ask the question, why in the world am I doing this? Why in the world am I doing this? Is this worth it? It doesn't seem worth it right now. The grief and the pain and the difficulty is such that I don't really want to deal with this anymore. Is it even worth it to continue? What, what, why should I not just throw in the towel and go do something else? temptation is to give up the fight. The temptation is to walk off the battlefield. And it's in those very moments, whether you're Timothy or whether you're me and my role or whether you're you in whatever role God has called you to in your life and in the work of the kingdom, it doesn't matter who you are, it's in those moments that what we need is to be reminded why we're doing what we're doing to start with. And the answer to that is because God's called us to it. It's because God's called us to it. Listen, let me tell you this. If you're in the thick of the battle and you're feeling perhaps like Timothy was feeling to where it's overwhelming and the battle is painful and it's hard and you're tired and you want to give up, if you're doing it for any reason other than God called me to this, you will quit and you will walk off the battlefield. That's the raw truth. It's true of everybody who serves. There's an enemy who's real. In ministry is hard. It's often discouraging and people are difficult at times. And the only way to be sustained in it is to remember and believe by faith that God has called me to this. He's called me to this. 
And so I'll discharge my ministry. I'll fulfill my ministry like Paul was calling Timothy to because God's called me to this. He set me apart from this and this is my charge and these are my orders. And so I fulfill them not because of the, the, the effects on the ground and not in order to please people and not in order to have a happy life. I do this in order to please the Lord, the one who set me apart for this. <clears throat> I do it to honor Him. I can tell you over, over the years... Now, I don't know, 23 or 24 years now of of ministry. There have been many times when I've wanted to quit. Many times when I've wanted to walk off the battlefield. Many times when the conflict was hot and people were mean. And it was just exhausting and life-consuming and life-draining. There were times when I felt like it was just stuck in the mud, spinning wheels, getting nowhere. And it's in those moments that you kind of get raw for a little bit and you have to search your heart and you have to ask the question, what in the world am I doing this for? I could be doing something else. And I know for me, I, I, I get this, what Paul is doing. Because I know in those moments in my life, it's been very key moments where God has reminded me the reason you're doing this and the reason you don't quit and the reason you stay at it is because this is what I've called you to. You do this for me. Not for any other reason. You have orders. You have a ministry to fulfill. Stay at it. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy needs to remember his ordination and this high point because he needs to remember that God's called him to this. And that he needs to engage the fight and not be discouraged. Timothy, I charge you with this. Here's what I've entrusted to you fight the good fight, wage the good warfare. Paul liked to use military metaphors and he uses them all throughout. In Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Uh, In Philippians chapter 2, he calls uh, Epaphroditus my my fellow soldier. He uses that kind of terminology a lot. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, uh, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. It's this wartime sort of metaphor that he uses regularly. And he uses it here. Timothy, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. This is what you need to be about. And he uses the word good, and he uses it because it's a reminder to Timothy and to us that not all fights are good fights. That not all wars are good wars. That not all wars are worth fighting, and not all fights are worth fighting. Timothy needed to understand that there's a good war and that there's a good war that's worth waging and he needed to be able to separate that from bad wars that are not worth waging and he needed to engage in the good wars and avoid the bad ones. All fights are not good fights. Every husband and wife knows this, right? Let's be honest for just a minute. I can remember very vividly early in my marriage and um, I can remember my wife and I had got into just a good brawl. I'm being transparent with you here this morning. We're both very stubborn, strong-willed people. And God has a great sense of humor when He puts people together. I suppose you see that in your marriages too. That's why you're chuckling right now. Not just laughing at me, you're laughing with me. Is that right? I can remember we'd gone into this lengthy, lengthy sort of back-and-forth argument. And I can very vividly remember at some point in that argument thinking... I have no idea what we're even fighting about right now. I have no idea what we're even fighting about. I just know I don't want to lose. 
That's all I can think of. And I just know I don't want to lose. So I'm going to keep going. That's, that's not a good fight. That's a stupid fight. What is that about? I don't even know what I'm fighting about, but I'm fighting. I just don't want to lose. That's, that's ignorant. That's stupid. But we do it, right? We do it. I suspect because someone looks on your face and you look at each other and all, right? You get that, right? You've done this? Am I that the only one? Not all fights are worth fighting. A lot of fights are really foolish fights. Dumb fights. That don't have anything positive to bring. And Paul has spoken to Timothy about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He, he's giving him guardrails to know where the good fight is, the good war, the, the good fight against the bad ones. He said in verse 4 of chapter 1, he talks about people uh, that he's to shut down these false teachers because they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations. That's the kind of fight you don't want to fight. Things that are myths and speculations, things that aren't built off of the actual truth of God's Word. You don't fight about those kind of things. They're foolish. In verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Apparently people were battling and arguing and being combative over irreverent things and silly myths, things that weren't true. In chapter 6, verse 20, he says, Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So again, all of these are ways of saying <clears throat> there are bad fights and bad wars going on all around you, and you need to stay out of that junk. There's nothing to be gained by it. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 8, when he speaks about elders and overseers, that's in verse chapter 3, I'm sorry, he says an overseer must not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. He's not the kind of person that is a fighter, that's argumentative and, and, and constantly doing battle over a bunch of foolish, silly things. You know, there are some believers who are just argumentative. And they'll argue with you about any doctrine, any issue that they feel strongly about. There is no doctrine and there is no issue too small to fight about. There are those who will fight over every personal preference, over every church tradition, and love to brawl and argue and fight and dispute. And the consistent message of the Scriptures is, avoid such a person. Stay away from such a person. Don't be that kind of a person. And that's not at all what Paul is calling Timothy to. He's telling him, in contrast to that kind of foolish stuff, in, co in contrast to stupid and foolish fights, there is a fight that's worth fighting. There is a war that's worth waging. And what is that? Well, clearly it's this, it's, it's this fight over the heresy that's going on in the life of the church. The gospel is at stake here. People's souls are hanging in the balance. And these are not peripheral issues. These are not matters of speculation. These are matters, matters of eternal destiny. These are matters that, that, that you've got to get right or else people can't know Christ and be saved. They're what we would call first order doctrines. Doctrines that matter. Doctrines that people have to be able to understand and embrace in order to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from their sin and be reconciled to God. Those are the kinds of things that are worth fighting about. The nature of God, the nature of Christ, the gospel itself, the, the nature of the atonement, the inerrancy of Scripture. All of these things are sort of critical mass issues that, that, are, that are fights that have to be fought. Battles that have to be waged to protect. Because apart from them, the gospel is obscured. And people remain locked in their lostness. So 
So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, you have to wage the good warfare. There are all kinds of fights that are not worth fighting. I'm really happy if you've got eschatology all figured out and you know when Jesus is coming back and how it's all going to play out. Well, congratulations. You know, give yourself a pen and, you know, go get a cup of coffee somewhere and celebrate. But I'm not going to argue with you about it. We're not going to fight about it. We're not going to do battle over it. We're not going to allow differences over that matter to to break our relationship or our fellowship. I'm glad you're excited about the doctrine of election and you think every Arminian's a heretic. Congratulations, you've got it figured out. Keep it to yourself. We're not going to fight about that. We're not going to do battle over these kinds of things. They're not fights worth fighting. Glad you have a favorite Bible translation and that you feel very passionately that the Bible translation that you like is the one everyone else should like too. But we're not going to argue about that. We're not going to fight about that. It's not a fight worth fighting. I understand that you've got a, an opinion about some disputed passage somewhere that's very difficult to interpret, but you've got it all figured out and you want everybody else to get on the same page with you. But I can tell you I'm not going to engage that fight with you. It's not a fight worth fighting. It's not a war worth waging. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about things like that. Sure, we care about those things. We should study all of the Scriptures and come to our own conclusions about what is true and settle those matters in our heart. That is absolutely for sure. All doctrine matters, and we need to settle it in our own minds and our own hearts. We need to know what we believe. We can't just say, well, those are hard things, and so we just ignore them and pretend like they don't matter. But we need to learn how to hold firm convictions with humility. We need to learn how to hold firm convictions with humility. See, I may be convicted about this, but I'm not going to do battle with you over this. Because it's not a war worth waging. It's not worth breaking fellowship with you over. It's not worth risking our relationship in the Lord over. Because nobody's salvation is hanging in the balance here. We don't fight over stuff like that. We can discuss those things intelligently, but it never gets over into the lane of fight or battle or war. It shouldn't. And when it does, we're out of line. You should never fight about things like church traditions and personal preferences. Those are are things we can discuss and have opinions about, but at the end of the day, they're not fights worth fighting. How many churches around the world have been ripped to shreds over church fights over personal preferences or over some silly tradition that somebody's holding on to that somebody else wants to break? People get wounded and people get destroyed and people are out of the church today because they've seen the ugliness of church fights over fights that were never worth fighting to begin with. Wars that were not worth waging. But there is a war that's worth waging. And Paul tells Timothy, you need to fight for the gospel because people's souls are hanging in the balance. So, uh, Phil Riken had, had put some diagnostic questions to ask that I thought were helpful that I'll just shoot up on the screen for you. If we're trying to figure out you know, this, this thing that I'm disputing with somebody else, is it a fight worth fighting? I thought these were helpful diagnostic questions that he put out there. Is this issue critical for understanding and responding to the gospel? Is it, is it critical for understanding and responding to the gospel? It's another way of saying, is it a first order matter? Another good question, will this, will this issue matter a year from now? If the answer to that is no, it's probably not a fight worth fighting. Am I enjoying this dispute in a perverse sort of a way? Am I enjoying this? Is the battle somehow bringing pleasure to me in some sort of an odd way? It's probably not a fight worth fighting. Am I fighting for myself or others? It's also another good diagnostic question. 
Do I find myself trying to justify my actions either to myself or others? It's also helpful, right? The answer to any of those things is, is, is well, three, four, or five. Well, three and five is yes. It's not a good fight. If you're fighting for yourself, it's probably questionable. Will it matter a year from now? If the answer is no, it probably doesn't matter right now either. It's probably not worth fighting for. But there is a good fight worth fighting, and that's the fight of the gospel. And he tells Timothy, there's two things you need, Timothy. Two things you need to fight the good fight, to wage the good war, and to make it to the finish line. And he gives them to us in verses 18 and 19. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Two things, holding faith and a good conscience. He moves from charging him to fight the fight to telling him how to fight the fight. There are two things you need, Timothy. One is an objective thing. It's the faith. And the other is a subjective thing. It's a good conscience. When Paul says holding the faith, what he means there is the deposit of faith, the body of truth, the objective truth that's been entrusted to him. He's saying to him, Timothy, you need to stand on the truth. You need to stand on the faith that's been entrusted to you. You need to know the truth. You need to have a solid grasp on the truth. You, had to, you need to know the objective content of our faith. And you need to know that because in this battle, your enemy is a master deceiver and he's a master twister of truth. So you need to know the truth so that you're not deceived in the battle. It's not enough to just love Jesus. It's not enough to just be sincere. But to actually know the content of our faith. And know truth. And that's why we study the truth. And that's why we memorize the truth. And that's why we go to the trouble of learning doctrine. Not so that we can be quarrelsome and argue and debate with people, but so that we can fight the good fight. So that we can guard what's been entrusted to us. So that we can protect ourselves and the body of Christ from a, a master deceiver who comes from many angles. Destroy the church. And he says, if you neglect this part, you'll go down in the fight. You'll be deceived by the deceiver. You need to know the truth. But you also need a good conscience. A good conscience. And Paul uses this theme throughout. But just to summarize, due to time, I'll just simply say this. A good conscience is what we have when we live an obedient life. When we understand the truth and we know the faith and then we live a life that is in accordance with the faith, we have a good conscience. Your conscience is the thing that gets activated when you disobey the Lord. You sin against the Lord and it's the little bell that goes off in your head, the little red light that spins, and that little voice that says, this is wrong, this is wrong, stop, don't do this. You're sinning against the Lord. It's a good conscience. If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about because when you sin... It burns your conscience. You know that what you're doing is wrong. The Lord has built that into you as a person. This warning that you're outside of the bounds. When he says to Timothy, Timothy, you need to stand on the truth and you need to have a good conscience. He's saying, Timothy, you need to live a life that reflects what you believe. It's a life that's not duplicitous. A life that's not a, the life of a hypocrite. It's a life that has a good conscience. You can stand and say, here are the things that I believe, and here's my life to show for it. He understands Timothy's not perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. Paul was far from perfect. But he was able to say at the end of his life, you know what? I've fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. He had a clear conscience. He had a clear conscience. When we sin, our conscience is activated. We have two choices. We can either repent of our sin in response to our conscience, 
be made right with the Lord or we can repress our conscience and continue on with our sin. And we do that long enough, we can sear our conscience, the Bible tells us. John Calvin says this, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. And what he means by that is simply this. When we live in ways that are hypocritical, when we live in ways that run sideways to the truth of the Lord, and we have a bad conscience, what ends up happening, if we do that long enough, is we begin to alter our beliefs in order to accommodate our behaviors. Did you catch that? If we sear our conscience, and we don't repent of our sin, and we run long enough away from the Lord, it won't be very long before we'll be shifting our beliefs to now accommodate our behaviors that we want to embrace. And we see it all around us in the modern Christian world. When my sin, when my conscience is activated by my sin, I have a choice. I can either bring my life under submission to the Word of God and get it back in line so that my conscience is clear, or I can press on and eventually just change the standard so that no longer what I'm doing is wrong, at least in my own mind. That's how you end up like Hymenaeus and Alexander. The two men that Paul mentions here who are the exact opposite. They are men who have rejected the faith and rejected a good conscience. They've willfully, intentionally rejected both. And the result, he tells us, in verse 20, is that they've made a shipwreck of the faith. They've made a shipwreck of the faith. Ephesus was a port city. They understood shipwrecks vivid description of what happens when we don't hold the faith and we don't have a good conscience. You wreck the ship. And that's what these men had done. They were clearly some of the opponents in Ephesus, perhaps the ringleaders, maybe even previous elders. Paul calls them out by name and he says, let me tell you, these guys have made a shipwreck of their faith and I've handed them over to Satan. Our time is up. But just not to leave you hanging on that matter, that's his way of saying they've been put out of the church. They've been put out of the church. You can go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 5, and you see another example of this same language being used in the context of a church discipline situation. And Paul is simply saying these men have shipwrecked their faith, they've denied the faith, and they do not have a clear conscience, and that's why they are what they are, and it's why they're doing what they're doing, it's why they're teaching what they're teaching, and I've handed them over to Satan. They are put out from the fellowship to protect the body, and and with the hope that they might turn around at some point, that they might learn, he says, not to blaspheme God. Paul takes this stuff seriously. The war is important and the war matters and people's souls are hanging in the balance. And the church, and particularly its leaders, have to take seriously the battle for truth. And they cannot stand for someone like Alexander or Hymenaeus in the church running wild and wreaking chaos in the whole body of Christ. They have to be addressed and they have to be removed until such time as they repent doesn't happen much in the church these days things are politically correct now and it's you know unkind to do such things we're told I've seen over the years in my ministry individual people who are just like Hymenaeus and Alexander who have destroyed churches by their ungodly behavior their divisive spirits and they've been allowed to do that unchecked I remember one man early on in my life in ministry who just did this over and over and over again and people would just always say oh that's just how he is 
Good. Let him be that way somewhere else. But nobody ever had the courage to do that. Paul had the courage. He understood that this was a battle. There were important things in the balance. And there was no time in the body for stuff like this. No time. Matthew 18 gives us a procedure for that. The church is responsible for protecting the body. That means you and that means me. So Timothy's in this battle. And he's discouraged. And he's wanting to give up. And he needed context. And so Paul says to him, Timothy, you are in a spiritual war. You're here because God's called you to it. Stand fast. Don't give up. Fight the fight. Stand on the truth of the faith. Do it with a clear conscience and a godly life so that your life matches your truth. And when you do that, when you stand on the truth and you know the truth and you live a life that's holy before the Lord, you can stand in the battle and you can be absolutely fearless in the face of anything the enemy brings at you. And you'll stand in the end. You'll stand because the Lord will sustain you. You can stand courageous. There was a man, I'll close with this, by the name of Hugh Latimer. Maybe you've heard of him if you read much church history. He was a martyr during the British Reformation in the 1500s, 1555. He was a powerful preacher. He preached justification by faith alone when that wasn't popular. And he also preached that a justified man shows it by the way that he lives. He carried this two-pronged thing that Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy 1. He didn't go easy on church leaders who he thought were lazy and didn't preach well. He called them names openly. He was invited to preach one day in Hampton Court before Henry VIII. And as expected, he offended the king. Henry told him at the end of his message, he rebuked him for what he had said, and he told him that he was ordered to come back and preach again the next week and to make an apology. Next week, Latimer shows back up, and he begins his sermon by addressing himself. And here's how he addresses himself. He says, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art to speak this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest? Upon whose message are thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God, who is present, who is all present, and who beholdest all thy ways, and who is able to cast thy soul into hell, therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. After addressing himself as such, he commenced to preach the exact same message he preached the week before, but more passionately. Hugh Latimer was in the battle. He was in the fight. And there was real threat all around him. But because he was a man who understood the faith and who had a clear conscience, he could be bold in the battle. It ultimately took his life. He was burned at the stake in 1555. And sometimes that happens. But it was a war worth waging. I don't know what you're doing right now in your life in the ministry. I know what you're doing right now. You're thinking, I wish this guy would hush so I can go to lunch. But I mean, apart from that, it's a thousand degrees outside. I'm doing you a favor by letting you stay in the AC. Um, apart from that, I don't know where you stand in your life in ministry right now. Maybe you're like Timothy. You're just you're just discouraged. You've been doing some sort of ministry somewhere, and it's been hard, and the battle has been painful, and there are times when you just want to give up, and you're asking yourself, why don't I just quit? Why am I even doing this? 
And maybe you just need to remember like Timothy did. You know, I'm doing this because the Lord has called me to it. And I have orders from Him. I have a ministry to fulfill. And it's not based on whether it goes well or bad. Whether the people receive me or not. Whether it's hard or easy. It's based on I want to see His smiling face. And I want to please Him. So you stay. And so you be encouraged. Maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're just kind of around the church. You hang around and you find these kinds of things interesting to hear people talk about the Bible and so forth. But there's, you never come to that place where you place your personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a possibility that you could be on a collision course to shipwreck your soul. If you're just kind of kicking the tires around the edge. You need to hear voice of the Lord Jesus this morning who's saying to you, come to me. Come to me and I'll give you life. Repent of your sin and trust your life to me. Submit to me. I'll bring you to life. I'll transform your soul. I'll redeem you. Don't leave here today without doing that. Let's pray together. God, we're grateful for your word which challenges and encourages. We're reminded by men who are named in the scriptures. Their names sort of sort of engraved forever as examples of those who have shipwrecked their faith. Their names are left there sort of as a a warning to us that it's possible. If we don't hold the faith, if we don't live with a clear conscience, pray for that woman, for that man who's here, whose conscience is burning right now because they know, they know the life that they're living is not in accordance with what they believe. And their conscience bears witness to that even now. I pray that you would draw them to repentance, Lord. Lord, for the man or woman who doesn't know you, make yourself known to them that they might see you clearly and be drawn to you. And for those who need encouragement, Lord, lift them up. By your Spirit, do your work. For Christ's sake, we pray. If you'd like somebody to talk to you or pray with you, I'm in the back of the room. I'd be happy to answer questions or pray with you, serve you any way that I can. You just step out as we sing this closing song.